What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DFS MVP, our first show of the 2018 season. I'm excited to be back. Uh, for the rest of the season, we're going to be recording weekly uh, through the championship week of the playoffs. Every Thursday, we're going to be dropping some uh, DFS MVP knowledge on you. And uh, we got we got some new things going on this year. Excited to talk about those. But before we get into the podcast, as always, introduce the music. Uh, what brought us in was Mace Feels So Good off of his Harlem World Record that dropped in 1997. Uh, one of my favorite tracks, and it feels good to be back. Uh, you guys all know me if you've listened to the DFS MVP podcast before. I am TJ Hernandez, the director of DFS at 4 for 4, and I have a new co-host for the 2018 season, Holden Kushner. Uh, I've got a chance to hang out with Holden in real life at FSTA this year. Uh, he's just a, a knowledgeable sports dude and a, a great DFS mind in his own right. So Holden, welcome to DFS MVP. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. I am a huge Mace fan, especially since he became a minister. <laughs> so we're going to go down that yeah, uh, down nice. that route. I'm being facetious. Uh, no, no, no. It is great to be a part of the show because really I came up learning DFS. I, this, I think this will be in the ninth year I played DFS, going back to like Star Street, that stuff. Yeah, but man. I learned, I really learned DFS um, through the 4 for 4 website. So I'm not awesome. only a host now, I'm a, I'm a fan. No, there's no doubt about it. Like I was printing up articles from you guys five, six years ago and, and meeting with some of the, the, the four for four team and trying to get some background. And I, I've really built my DFS models around what you guys are preaching. Cause I honest to God, believe this. It's not just because I work with you now. This is the, the, there's two sites I have paid for. This is the first site that I've ever paid for. And one of only two sites I've ever paid for information. And it's because it's great. And when we were hanging out together up in Minneapolis at the conference, the, the fantasy football conference, there were so many people in the industry that were coming up and saying, Oh man. And, and you know, I just said, I'm working with four for four now. Oh, I love you guys. You know, <laughs> yeah. you guys, I just, I've, I've been here for two seconds. I love you guys. It's the secret weapon. I never told anybody that I used four for four. It was a secret weapon because yeah. I had an advantage over everybody else. And that's exactly what the guys at FSTA were saying. They're like, Oh man, we love you guys, but they don't want to tell anybody about it. Yeah, it's it's nice for the uh, the people that are winning and telling telling everyone, uh, or at least telling you that they're winning with four for four. But uh, we have a we have a kind of running joke that it's antiviral for the very reason you mentioned. But uh, yeah, I'm like you, man. I I come from uh, I was a four for four sub before I worked for four for four, going all the way back to the the Jonathan Bales days as the the leader of DFS. So uh, him, Chris Raybon, I got big shoes to fill. But but I'm excited. But Beyond DFS, um, I mean, you you uh, come from radio background in your own right, uh, a, a great personality on Sirius. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about that history? Yeah, I've been doing radio TV for almost 20 years, and I'm based in Washington, D.C., so I had the midday show here on the CBS, now Intercom 106.7 The Fan. I did that. I was with Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio for a while. I launched the FanDuel podcast, and then you know all the advertisements came down, and FanDuel decided to kind of blow that up after one year, but that's when I started working with Raybon. Me and Raybon were doing the FanDuel podcast. So I got a long history in that. And I've been, I've reported from Super Bowls and World Series and Stanley Cups and Final Fours and all that stuff. And a, a lot of times people go from fantasy wanting to actually cover the NFL or whatever their favorite sport is. I'm doing it in reverse because my passion for so long has been fantasy sports, daily fantasy in particular, sports betting. But I just love DFS and the fact that I get to work with you, somebody that I've actually been reading for quite some time now. This is going to be terrific. So, TJ, it's great to be along with you, man. Yeah, I'm excited too, man. I mean, uh, like you said, you you are, are a DFS guy now that, that come from a sports background. I mean, I'm excited to talk to you for for the exact opposite reason. I mean, I know sports. I watch all sports. But when I look at you, you're you're a sports dude. So I think you're going to be able to bring a, a little different flavor that I don't have just staring at spreadsheets all, all day. So that's going to be fun. Uh, for the listeners that are new that haven't listened to DFS MVP before, uh, we, we try to do things a little bit differently on this podcast. Obviously, once we get into the season, we're going to be talking about who our favorite players are, uh, giving you some strategy every single week. But also, 
our goal is to teach you guys how to play DFS rather than just telling you who to play. And uh, that shows up in our weekly theory segments. Uh, what we do there is we kind of go through a, a different topic each week, just touch on our weekly process, and hopefully that helps turn into dollar signs for you guys. So uh, I'm excited to to talk about that and what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we're still about six, seven weeks away from kickoff, so Holden and I are going to be talking about our our process leading up to the season, kind of uh, brushing off the dust before the season starts, especially if you're someone that plays only NFL DFS. You got to get that preparation ready before we, we even see a kickoff and uh, talking about some game theory and some, some bankroll as well. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, I'll tell you what I was doing this time of year. Uh, the last few years, I was going to 4 for 4. I was getting my, my subscription and I was going to the DFS hub. And I'm, yeah. I'm telling you, I'm not even messing around here. I go to the DFS hub. There's so much information dating back years there that's going to help you and your process heading into the, the upcoming season. So, you know, whether you've been doing this for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, or this is your first year, your second year, it's always a good time to brush up. So, um, we got a lot going on in this show. So you're right. We're going to do game theory, some strategies. Do you even need to watch NFL games? We'll talk about lineup construction for both cash and GPP. If you know already, good. Brush up again. If you don't know, hey, you might as well listen, right? What does it mean to be contrarian? Uh, contrarian is a word we throw around a lot in DFS. What does it actually mean? What's the ideal number of lineups to give yourself the best chance of winning big? That's a question I get all the time, TJ. And and I've heard you guys talk about it before. We're going to talk about it here. What, do, can I can I win with one lineup? Do I need to put in 50 lineups, 100? Is there a number that I need to go to? We can also talk a little bit about uh, game selection too. Uh, a cash game, you're going to be a cash game player. Do you like GPPs more? I love the 10-man games, as you and I were discussing before. I love those 10-man games, especially on a short slate. Something that, uh, for me, is, is a little bit of a rush, gets me some action on the later primetime games. But I also want to remind everybody that you get a monster, monster discount when you sign up for our DFS MVP DFS sub. 25% off. You go to 444.com. You sign up. You put in the code DFSMVP. You get 25% off the subscription. So, TJ, monster, monster, knocking off the price there, 25%. Yeah, that's it's a crazy discount, uh, one of the deepest discounts we offer. And just to be clear, that that's only on the DFS sub. So not for the pro, not for the classic. Use DFS MVP code only for the DFS sub. Not only am I a 4 for 4 host now, I am a subscriber. But uh, <laughs> so, so let's get into the game theory yeah. and the strategies, TJ, because I love watching the NFL. I mean, I sit down here, I've got five televisions, I got the NFL package, and I'm watching it all the time. And I wonder what your thoughts are, though. Do you do I have to watch NFL games? Because there's a lot of guys in this business, or I, I guess in this trade, that do not even watch NFL games and still clean up on Sundays. Yeah. Um, I, in a word, no, you don't have to. Uh, I get into this conversation a lot with uh, other guys on on fantasy Twitter, on football Twitter in general. And the point I always come back to is my main goal is to win in fantasy and to win in DFS. And to do that, I'm trying to exploit an arbitrary point system that is set up by a website with uh, different tiers of payout structures. And I think the process in that is very little to do with, especially in redraft and DFS where it's such a short window. We're not talking about player talent evaluation here. Now, if we're talking about the the film versus the metrics crowd, then we can we can talk a little bit more about should you be watching film or not. But uh, for for the process that we're doing, I think it's a it's a very inefficient process to go through game film, uh, watch every single game. Can you learn some stuff? Absolutely. I'm the same as you. I have a I have a four TV setup. I watch every game on on Monday nights on on Directv when they roll back those thirty minute uh, clips. I tend to watch most of them just to see if, if there's anything glaring I missed. And just because I'm, I, I'm a masochist and I don't have a life and I just pay attention to football all season once, once kickoff. But uh, like I said, in general, I think it's a, it's a pretty inefficient process just because most people aren't properly trained in how to watch film. So what's going to happen is you, your eyes are going to play tricks on you. You're, you're going to fall victim to uh, biases, especially things like recency bias. And that's directly connected to seeing these big flash highlight plays. Most people that watch football are watching the ball. They're not watching uh, players on a play-by-play basis, on a route-by-route basis. So they remember whoever, whoever it is. I don't know. Sammy Watkins scored two 
two touchdowns last week. I was watching that game. Sammy Watkins is awesome. If you're not going through and seeing exactly how that happened, how many times uh, he was targeted, how many routes he ran, how much he was on the field, uh, it could really play tricks on you. Now, I do think there are times to watch NFL games specifically or, or go back and watch a little bit of film as it pertains specifically to DFS. And uh, that is basically when the data isn't giving me the answer I'm looking for. So uh, some of that might be the, the context of play. So if we're looking strictly at Snapshare, uh, even if we can we find a resource that could break it down by quarter, like what is the context of that? Is there a team that was in hurry up and, and they weren't rotating their running back? So we have a very uh, skewed idea of how many snaps a running back was playing maybe they they have a regular rotation and a running back just got stuck in a, a catch-up mode so that running back stayed on the field uh short red zone targets we, we see uh, a lot of talk about red zone targets and how are these wide receivers being used in the red zone are are they only getting targeted when they, when they're getting matched up against smaller cornerbacks are they uh, more of like a sammy Watkins type where they're uh really finessing the red zone not necessarily getting up and over people i, I think there's some value there um, and then even if these players are running routes and, and not being targeted, why does that happen? One example that really stood out to me last year, I actually just went back a couple weeks ago and watched was OJ Howard for the Buccaneers down the stretch last year. He was out snapping Cameron Brait by a, a huge amount. And I went back and, and watched some of their games. I was like, why was he on the field so much, but not having a lot of targets? And the reason was one, he was either blocking or when he was running routes, it was way on the other side of the play. So it was just, uh, it, maybe it's variance, but it let me know that, yeah, he was running routes, but uh, maybe he wasn't necessarily part of the passing game plan at that point, whatever that might mean. So um, I, I think there are times to check it out and try to figure out, try to uncover uh, maybe some missing puzzle pieces. But I, I think, like you said, there's a lot of successful people that don't watch games. And I think it's because a lot of this comes down to data. Well, I guess to that point that maybe snap counts can lie a little bit, right? In sure, his case, absolutely. Like if you're staying back to block, then I mean, maybe that, that's something where you've got to look at a tight end and say snap counts may not be as important as volume as sure. far as targets go, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's something that a lot of people don't have access to something like uh, maybe they don't have access to routes ran. Uh, and if, if you some people maybe can't subscribe to all of these sites or all of these uh, these uh, premium data subs that, that can often be very expensive. So uh, if you can't do that, go back and watch a couple plays or watch five or six series that for the OJ Howard example. Uh, and you can get that information, but I, I think in general, people are again, going to go back, watch games and, and remember those highlight plays. And that could be a little dangerous. It can, especially if you sit at home, and you watch red zone on Sundays. Yeah, yeah man. I'll just, I'll just say this. I love, I absolutely love the NFL. I mean, that's why you and I are doing this anyways. That's why there's a whole bunch of people in this, in this business. We just love watching games. I love watching games. I love sweating. At the end, too, as much as I say I hate it and I chew my nails down, I pull my hair out, I throw things in my basement. I still love it. I love the sweat. <laughs> you know, the, if I'm if I got a one o'clock slate games and I'm down to the final two games, it's like four fifteen. I love that sweat. So, no, you don't have to watch NFL games. But the reason why we're in this because we absolutely love the NFL and what's going on with it. So um, I do watch it. I probably watch too much. And someday, TJ, someday. You can be married. Maybe you'll have kids. Maybe you won't have kids, but you're going to want to get away from them as much as possible. <laughs> and I think that watching NFL is going to be a nice excuse. There's no better feeling than that that early game, that kickoff with lineups lock, and you have 10 games going at once. It's the best, man. Yeah, especially on the West Coast. You, were, I, I'm so envious of you guys on the West Coast because I used to live in the West Coast. I, I worked out of the uh, sports book in Mandalay Bay. I had a, a talk show out of there, a radio show. And going in, uh, actually, it sucked Sunday mornings because living in Vegas, you're out till five, six in the morning anyways. But <laughs> having those 10 a.m. starts on the West Coast, it's amazing. The games are done early. You can go out after the games. I'm completely envious of you being on the West Coast. That's that's the best part. The The Monday day is like the one time during the season where you get a little bit of breather because uh, you're still just kind of waiting for the week to wrap, wrap up. You can't really do all of your work. So Sunday night, you can go out and let loose a little bit and being on the West Coast, uh I'd say about halftime every week of Sunday night football. I'm, I, I got about, I have one or two whiskeys in me. All right, let's get into the, the, the meat and potatoes here, the lineup construction yeah. for cash and GPP right now. Um, if you are, if you've been playing DFS a while in, in all likelihood, you're putting a lot more um, 
of your monetary resources into cash games, right? This makes sense. Yeah, I mean, for for people that are are trying to grind out a steady profit um, or minimize variance, that's definitely the uh, the savvy thing to do. Just because GPPs are are so so volatile, um, and we only have so many trials in the NFL, you only have seventeen weeks. Even if you're you're playing multiple slates, you're going to have a lot of overlap with your players. It's just kind of inevitable. Uh, I mean, if you're a if you're a real not a real uh, if you're playing true daily games such as baseball, I mean, it's very common to have a a two-week stretch of of no winning or of just a a big downswing we basically that's basically our nfl season is two weeks in mlb we only have 17 trials so um if if you run bad in gpps it could get ugly but we're going to touch on some stuff here that we've definitely touched on the past and in the dfs mvp podcast before uh a lot of this content can be thousand two thousand word articles on their own but again we're just trying to hit on a couple refreshers for people that are only playing nfl dfs and you mentioned it up top one of the the main resources for all of these concepts is the dfs strategy hub and we're going to be pulling a lot of these talking points straight from articles and and content in that strategy hub you'll find that in the the right column if you go on to 444.com but i think the the first thing you want to consider when you're just talking general cash versus gpp is you're looking at high floor versus a high ceiling cash game uh you want to narrow those range of outcomes you want to have the highest floor possible and in gpps it's opposite you want to expand that range of outcomes uh you don't care if you come in uh 10,000th place or, or uh, 1,999th place if they both don't cash. We're really looking for that upside. And in GPPs, the way to do that is to expand those range of outcomes. And the way to do that in general usually comes down to where you're paying at at each position. So in cash games in general, uh, we want to favor uh, volume. And that's especially true on DraftKings because it is full PPR scoring. Whereas uh, on FanDuel, you have a little more variance. You want to favor touchdown equity, but that still comes down to opportunity close to the goal line. So so we're looking for uh, those volume plays in cash games, especially at running back and wide receiver, but uh, a little bit of discrepancy uh, depending on where you want to pay in general people are going to pay more for QBs and running backs in cash games. Uh, those winning cash games data has shown that paying up at those positions has been a little more profitable over the long run. Over the long run, in uh, GPPs, paying for those pass catchers again, embracing that high volatility, uh, paying up at the wide receiver position is going to expand the range of outcomes because those wide receivers are just going to be more volatile. They see less volume. They touch the ball less than running backs at quarterbacks. And uh, you're just going to, you're going to have uh, bigger swings with those positions uh, looking at, Oh, go ahead. So I'm when, when I'm on FanDuel, when I'm playing FanDuel mm-hmm. as opposed to DraftKings, because PPR is almost like the default, the default season long, you know, it, it, sure. and everybody's playing PPR. And I think that people are more familiar with it when you go to half point PPR and it's an uncomfortable zone for at least some newer players and some people that don't yeah. devote as much time to it as we do. So when I'm looking at, at when I'm playing on FanDuel, I, I guess the question heading into this would be, can you predict touchdowns? Is there a decent, is there a, a decent method to at least give yourself an opportunity to have guys with touchdowns as opposed to guys that don't score touchdowns? I think one of the best things we could do is predict touchdown regression. Uh, so again, going back to looking at, are players getting opportunities in the red zone? Is a team passing or running more often in the red zone? Where in the red zone are teams or players getting those opportunities to score? That's uh, that's actually something we're working on right now at 4 for 4. I'm releasing all of my uh, touchdown regression analysis, and I'll also uh, be releasing that throughout the season uh, just based on looking at a metric I call red zone expected value. It tells you exactly where these players are getting targets or opportunities from in the red zone. And then we look at the league average, or if players have a big enough sample size, their career average, how often are they scoring from those points on the field? And that translates to a a touchdown expectation. If they're well above or well below that expectation, well, we can expect those opportunities to regress either positively or negatively. So in terms of touchdowns, that is one thing we could definitely look at. I mean, that's not going to play out uh, maybe in a single week, but often over the course, even just a single season, that will uh, that will will regress a little bit. But um, it's you can look at the number of carries that a guy has had inside the five, right. inside the three, inside the one. And I feel like, and get back to my point, I guess, is on FanDuel, 
I'm treating it more as a standard as opposed sure. to a full point PPR. I'm looking more as a standard. I'm trying to predict guys that are just going to get into the end zone as opposed to guys that are going to have 10 catches for 90 yards. Yeah, and you're just is, not. Tell me, is that the way to go when you're Absolutely. playing on FanDuel? You're not going to be able to make up those points through volume on FanDuel. If, if uh, let's use tight end, for example, tight end so volatile on the week to week level that even if you do find a tight end that is the rare eight, nine, 10 target a, a game guy like the Travis Kelsey's or, or the uh, Zach Ertz, if another tight end scores a touchdown and they don't, they're going to be able to jump them on FanDuel because you're only getting half a point. Whereas maybe you can still top the leaderboard with a Zach Ertz or Travis Kelsey without a touchdown on DraftKings. So those opportunities are are very important to look at, not just in in uh, GPPs but in cash games as well. I mean, we're we're still looking for players to quote unquote save our teams in these cash games. You want to be able to have maybe one or two duds and still be able to cash. So paying attention to those things on a weekly level is going to show itself in the bottom line at the end of the season. All right, so we're when we're looking at lineup construction then, you want the volume at running back and wide receiver. Sure. You want the volume at tight end as well. But when you're looking at cash games, there is data to back up that you, you tend to at least use as a tiebreaker the team that's playing at home or the player that's playing at home, right? Especially in cash games, uh, for those those volume players, the the quarterbacks, running backs, and to a lesser extent, tight end, those players that rely heavily on game script, uh, teams just tend to play better at home. Uh, we have 10 plus years of data that shows teams uh, generally are better against the spread, uh, better uh, have higher win percentages at home. The home field advantage is real. And when you could take those small edges, and like we said, we're trying to narrow our range of outcomes in these cash games those players are going to perform better better when they have a better chance at a positive game script. For wide receivers, it's a little different. Wide receivers can uh, actually perform really well in negative game script, and that comes down to exactly what I talked about at the top of the show. I'm, we're in the business of trying to exploit an arbitrary point system, and in a negative game script, if it's – uh, if it's garbage time and a wide receiver catches four passes for 80 yards on the final drive, that's 12 points. That same quarterback, he doesn't get any points for those completions and his 80 yards, that's only that's only four points for him. So that's why you are looking for those efficient spots for those quarterbacks, that positive game script, not the volume, where the wide receivers, that extra volume, that could win you a GPP. Well, it seems like tight end's coming out of my mouth a lot here tonight. So <laughs> tight end. Don't pay up for tight end in a lot of instances. Now, th- there's going to be some instances where you're going to want to pay up for, for tight end, but why are you trying to save a tight end no matter what the game is? We've just seen in the past, whether it's cash game or GPP, winning lineups, lineups that are cashing are paying down at tight end relative to those that aren't cashing. And that has to do with the position being so volatile on a weekly level. There aren't a lot of players that are seeing high volume. The ones that are priced up very high and you could often match that volume with wide receivers, wide receivers that are equal or less value to those tight ends in terms of salary. And like I said, it's, even on on DraftKings, because most tight ends aren't seeing more than six or seven targets, one touchdown's going to have those tight ends jump up the leaderboards very quickly. So if you can spot a, a value tight end, uh, that's usually the play uh, just in general. I mean, when we're talking about uh, getting a little deeper, talking about being contrarian, different lineup constructions and very large field GPPs, you can make arguments for all types of roster constructions. But uh, in general, over the long run, those cheaper tight ends have just proven to be more valuable. TJ, let's talk about stacking and sure. and not stacking because mm-hmm. you're trying to you're trying to minimize risk in a cash game. Yeah. You want you want a safest bet to build the point structure that you need. And then on the other side of things with GPP, you're gonna take a lot of those chances. So yeah. as far as stacking in cash games, what's your thoughts on stacking in cash games on both DK and FanDuel? Is there a difference there for you? Uh, with with the full PPR scoring on DraftKings, I'm a little more prone to do it in cash games and especially in head-to-heads. And, and this goes a little bit for FanDuel as well. And this has a little less to do with uh, scoring system and a little more to do with how you make money in head-to-heads compared to something like 50-50s or double-ups. And the basic uh, idea is that in fi- if you're playing 
just 50 fifties or double up. You really want to narrow your range of outcomes even more than you would in a head to head. I mean, you still want to, you still want to try to beat over 50% of the field in either game, because that's where you're going to start making money. That's how you're going to get into the black. But uh, in those 50 fifties or double ups, once you reach a certain point threshold, it doesn't matter. Say the the cutoff is 150 on DK to cash that week in 50 fifties. If whether you score 151 points or 200 points, you won the same amount of money. You doubled up. Now, if you're playing exclusively head-to-heads, there's a very clear monetary advantage to uh, having a little bit of upside in your lineup. And this might be as simple if if you ha- you still want to narrow your range of outcomes overall. You still want to pay attention to the, those heuristics in terms of uh, position and where you should be paying at. But if you do have an opportunity, if you do like, say, a quarterback and a wide receiver that you could fit into what would be a normal cash lineup, uh, you should not avoid a stack in head to heads if you're playing high volume because every extra point can be an extra head to head win and that is extra money so uh, just think about it uh, say you're playing 100 head to heads if you uh, don't stack and take that extra upside maybe you win 65 of your head to heads uh, because you wanted to diversify a little bit but if that stack hits and you win say 90 of your head to heads that's not, if you're playing $1 head to heads. That's an extra 15 bucks in your bankroll. That's an extra 15% uh, ROI on the bottom line. And that really adds up over the course of the season. So I'm generally, I'm not going to force it in cash games, but if the opportunity presents itself and I'm playing mostly head to heads, there's a lot of value in that. But double ups, 50 fifties, anything like that. Um, stacking viable in cash games. Is it viable in cash games? If it, my, basic theory on this is uh, don't forego the best value of the week because you're trying to avoid a stack. Um, so if it's, if it's a coin flip uh, and, and I can't decide, maybe I'll go uh, head to heads. I'll use the stack 50 fifties. I won't, but if the stack just happens to be the best value of the week, man, roll with that stack. This, this game's all about value and you don't want to uh, give up that value just because you're afraid of, of a, a little bit of downside. I mean, remember we're still going on the assumption that we're wrong a lot. So even if we think we have the quote unquote best value lineup, we're very liable to have a, a dud, even in a 50, 50 or double up that stack might save us. Um, I'm just saying I'm a little more prone to doing head to heads because of the monetary advantage. I'm just glad you brought up that if anybody tells you that they're right, the overwhelming amount of time that they're, they're completely lying to you. I mean, it's <laughs> there's so many variables. We're just trying to limit the variables. We're just trying to give ourselves the best chance of winning more than anything else with all these different tools that you're getting. And, and, and as far as the, the stack value report last year, the four for four stack value report all over it. I mean, all yeah. over it because it's going to, it's, it, there's a, there's an algorithm there's that you guys put together and it's going to give you the best shot at coming up with the best team stack because there's non-traditional stacks too. I mean, there's game stacks, there's all types of different stacks, but the, the four for four value report really makes it simple for you. Yeah. My favorite thing about the stack value report is it highlights some of those under the radar stacks or, and even if you don't end up using that stacks, maybe it just highlights a, a pass catcher that is prone to really pop or a, a cheap quarterback that maybe you can use in cash games that you weren't thinking about. We've seen these lineups that are winning these big tournaments. Um, oftentimes it is a high priced receiver uh, paired with their quarterback or at the very least a quarterback with his wide receiver one. But sometimes when we go back and look at these value reports, it could help us fill out our individual lineups. It could help us round out our overall po- portfolio because in GPPs, if you are say mass entering a, a 150 max contest, you shouldn't just be throwing it all on, on one team or one quarterback. So it, it does bring to light some of those plays. And then um, these non-traditional stacks, again, that's a, a good example is running back defense. We're going to have Denny Carter back on four for four, writing about uh, those stacks every week. He might even throw in a couple of kicker stacks and those aren't stacks that you necessarily force. But again, uh, if those are teams or players that uh, fill out value that you were already on and you can, you can pair running back and defense when most people aren't, that's a small advantage that, that you could take advantage of. Yeah, you could try and predict game script and say that this team's going to be ahead or this team's going to be behind. And you can even look at Vegas with the over-unders. Well, it was the Patriots-Falcons game last year. I think had an over-under well in the 50s. And they barely, if they scraped 30, I'd be surprised. Things just happen in the NFL mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to predict. It happens in sports. So when when I'm looking at 
um, that type of thing. If I'm stacking a game, let's say I went back there, I bet you in my lineups, I, I, in my cash games, I may have even had non-traditional stacks in my cash game lineups because I was yeah, um, so into that one, right? And, and that's going to happen, but you're, you're going to get burned from time to time. But I, I think one of my favorite non-traditional stacks too, you can go quarterback, wide receiver, uh, and then opposing wide receiver, quarterback, wide receiver, tight end, opposing tight end. There are so many different ways to have a unique lineup by using non-traditional stacks, especially in your GPPs, which is where you really want to target. Yeah. And and we talk about that. uh, We've talked about that a lot in the past. We talk about that in our, uh, our breakdown of stack analysis in the DFS hub, those, those game stacks, especially if you're playing in these really huge fields. I mean, that's a way you could really run away from the field because like you mentioned, a lot of people stop it at quarterback wide receiver. And there's still this notion among good players, especially among novice players that there's this uh, cannibalization of touchdowns or of points uh, within a single team and in theory that makes sense because if your wide receiver scoring your running back isn't but if a offense pops and they put up a, a 40 spot there's gonna be a lot of juiciness to come out of those games and you want as much of that as possible it's not every week that a team's gonna blow up like that and if you can have a a Julio and a Devontae Freeman and maybe scoop up four of a team's five touchdowns that goes a really long way see maybe I need to brush up on this what I remember from listening last year and the year before that, the the best correlation would be quarterback one, running back one, right? Is that the highest scoring correlation? The highest scoring correlation is uh, quarterback with his receivers. Quarterback, wide receiver one, quarterback, wide receiver two is by far the most. But the the big uh, the big misconception is that there's that negative correlation with uh, quarterback and running back when in fact it's slightly positive. So I think that's where people uh, lose their way a little bit and probably leave some, leave some value on the table. There you go. So I need to go visit the hub again. I will be doing that after the show. <laughs> so <laughs> let's move on to the, it's kind of the, it's the cool words it was a cool word for a long time is contrarian. Yeah. What does it mean to be contrarian? You want to be contrarian or GPPs with TJ what does that mean when it comes to DFS? I'm going to start with what it doesn't mean. Uh, it doesn't mean just rostering players because they're going to be 1% owned. Uh, in GPPs, we want to pay attention to ownership. It's arguably more important than projections or game flow or Vegas odds, uh, especially in these large fields. But you have to be looking at it from an intelligent way. You don't want to go into ownership and say, who's 1% and load up with 10 of those guys. You're not going to win that way. Uh, The way to do that is you still want to be looking for these good players or maybe under the radar situations that people are, are greatly ignoring. In general, if we're, if we're looking at, let's say we're comparing top tiers of guys. If someone like a Julio Jones is 40% owned and Odell Beckham's 10% owned, that's almost always going to be a, a play for Odell because no matter the matchup, no matter the opposing defense, no matter the Vegas line, in any given week, Julio Jones is almost never four times more likely to be the top scorer than Odell Beckham is. They're top tier receivers for a reason. So when we're talking about paying attention to ownership, that's what we're looking for. That's how you could be contrarian. Uh, rostering players from the second tier of these over-unders and implied totals. People are always talking about these uh, these Vegas lines, Vegas odds, and even the most casual NFL fan is privy to this nowadays. But especially early in the season, there's a lot of value in in looking at that second tier. We've seen it uh, time and time again. There's such a high correlation between over/under and implied totals and ownership. And those guys that are close to that 50 point over/under, that 28 point implied total, uh, those are going to be the highest owned players. But especially early in the season when Vegas hasn't caught up and uh, they're still trying to figure out who these best offenses are. In looking at the teams with, in the games with a, a 46-47 point total or a 24-point implied total, there's a lot of value in those teams. Uh, looking at players that are on teams that are slight underdogs, maybe they're at home and they're only a two-point underdog, a lot of people are going to ignore that quarterback or ignore that running back. But like you said, they're, if we're really good, we're only right about 60% of the time. So there's a 40% chance that it's not going to go the way we expect. Sometimes the, the opportunities more. So we're looking to uh, expand our range of outcomes when we're looking to be contrarian. So those are situations where teams are slight underdogs. People are ignoring them. If it's a one, two point spread, that means that game is probably, probably going to be really close, but people are still going to heavily look at the favorite. Um, another thing that I look for 
are there salary drops on players when there shouldn't be? If, if a player is just all of a sudden cheaper, but he hasn't seen uh, a decrease in volume, maybe he just hasn't scored in two weeks. That's a way to be contrarian because usually ownership reflects past week's performance. So, uh, I mean, there's a few other ways, but don't want to get too long winded here. Those are a few things I look at. Um, anything that, that you see in there that, that you've been paying attention to in the past? Well, I, th- the, I think for me is I got to battle myself sometimes. I, yeah. I, I bet you there's a lot of DFS players that are like that. You have mm-hmm. to, I just have to clear a lot of the ideas out of my mind and get as simple as possible. But I also think being contrarian against yourself sometimes. So yeah. I'll use a, let's go to Kenny Britt. I can't stand Kenny Britt. Okay. And <laughs> I'm sure I've been burned by Kenny Britt a million times, but I'm going to be contrarian against myself. If I see where there's a window that maybe Kenny Britt is going to have a good week this week, the stars have aligned. And for the third time ever, I think Kenny Britt is going to have a monster game. The last two times he's just crushed me. Well, maybe I'll be contrarian against myself and I'll do a little Kenny Britt piece this week. I, I think it's really easy um, to be contrarian just on a, on a really on, on a micro level inside your own mind and say that, I'm I'm going to do something that in the past I've just automatically said there's no way I'm going to do it. So I don't think it's the the actual sense of being a contrarian as as opposed to the other people that you're playing against. I think it's just doing something different that you don't feel comfortable with. You know what? That's a really good point. That's something I, I didn't even think about bringing up, but one of the best exercises you can do at the beginning of the week, uh, whether you're uh, someone that does this for a living or someone that just is a sub to, to four for four to another site on Tuesday or, or Monday, whenever the lineups come out, start doing your own research and then build your own lineups. There's a reason that sites like, uh, like Fanshare tag all these highest owned players. And it's very, uh, they're, they're the same guys ac- across Twitter, across multiple subscription accounts. A lot of these people are doing the same research and group think is real. We end up seeing the players that are touted the most being owned the most. Do your own research, find out guys that you think can pop and who cares what I say or what Holden says or what someone else on another website says. If we're all saying the same thing, even if I didn't look at those guys' research and you think something else, throw that guy into a few lineups. Now you're being contrarian, but on a you're you're doing it in a uh, a very education uh, educational way. You're doing it with a lot of research and and it's not just throwing darts. So that's a really good point and and something that I forgot to bring up. Can you be contrarian, like implementing game stacks and team mm-hmm. stacks and leveraging non-traditional stacks? Let's talk about being contrarian as far as stacks go, TJ. Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, going back to who people are touting within that week, it's often going to lead to uh, very similar lineup constructions, even across a tournament as big as a Millie Maker. Say, um, say you got a super high over under in a, in a game that's going to shoot out with two teams that are uh, big passing offenses. Maybe you have something like, I don't know, the, the Packers versus the the Falcons. Um, and everybody's looking to those pass catchers or those quarterbacks. And they're really highly priced. If those are the most popular plays of the week, all of a sudden we're going to see a lot of lineups that look similar because you can't pay up everywhere. So people are going to pay down for their running backs. They're going to pay down for their tight ends. If you see that that's very prevalent, Flip it on its ear. Take some uh, take some expensive running backs and cheaper wide receivers, cheaper quarterbacks. Even if you don't love them, again, the chance that a one player has a, a five or six x chance of being the the top scorer, top three scorer, or an, over another good player is is pretty slim. So just flip the the most popular uh, stacks on its ear and maybe stack with a tight end if you want to stay within a game instead of stacking those two most popular players. Stack uh, a quarterback with the least popular position in that game there. There's lots of ways to go about it and be contrarian rather than just like I, I mentioned earlier, just going for guys that are 1% all willy nilly and, uh, and not really putting too much thought into it. Did you say willy nilly? Yeah, man. Dude, I thought I was the old guy. Like do people <laughs> really use willy nilly still? I don't know. It's just fun. I like saying it. Yeah. All right. Well, good for you. <laughs> uh, it's our first awkward moment of the DFS. MVP I hope there's podcast. more. Oh, there'll be plenty. Trust me. Hey, you also, we, 
let, let me just say this. If you're going to do a podcast, if you've ever done a podcast, right? Don't just turn the mic on and start talking to whoever you're doing the show with. Do a little bit of research, get on the same page. So what TJ and I did, go back and forth, come up with an outline. And it says, what does it mean to be contrarian? The last one that you gave me here, TJ says, late swap, exclamation point, exclamation point. There's four exclamation points. It's probably one of the the least utilized aspects of the game that could give you one of the biggest edges. The minute these lineups lock, we have data on what everybody is doing in the games you've played. And it doesn't matter if you're playing a cash game in a 50-50. We know right away if we thought a guy was going to be 10% owned and they're 30% owned, that's a huge piece of information. All of a sudden the the lineup that we thought was somewhat contrarian is very chalky. Now let's go back and rectify that before the other line, before the other games kick off. We have the ability to do that on both FanDuel and DraftKings. Now we have to take advantage and then going down later into the day, whether it's the, the 1 PM uh, is ending or if the 4 PM is ending, we're getting ready for Sunday night. We, depending on, on how many players you have left, we have a very good idea of where we stand and you should be going through your lineups every single week. If you're way behind and you have a, two players left and they're both guys that are you think are going to be 30 40% owned you're not going to catch the field you're not going to cash throw in uh their wide receiver two on that team or the running back on the other team that uh you can afford to play even if you don't think he's going to have a good game you have to give yourself a chance to 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 show up if uh, if something unexpected happens and that chance goes well beyond the early kickoff so if people aren't taking advantage of that they're leaving money on the table you have to be sitting on your laptop, on your phone, uh, on your desktop as, as soon as the next game's getting ready to start and taking in as much information as possible and using that to your advantage. Because guess what? There's a lot of people that aren't doing it, and that alone is going to add money to your bottom line. Late swap can make you be a contrarian, even if you didn't do a good job when lineup's locked. That is what I'm talking about. Straight nilly willy. Willy Late nilly. Swap. Oh, willy-nilly. Sorry. We'll get I it. said it backwards. Hey, you know what we need to do? I, in all seriousness, the way you're talking about this, we probably need to devote like 15 minutes to this on another episode because I think late swapping is fascinating. And you really have to devote some time to doing this. Like if you want to be good on a consistent basis, you can't just set a lineup at, you know, 11 and what is 1130 after the injury reports come out. 11, I, I think it's 1130. You can't just set it and then, you know, hope everything works out for the rest of the day. If you want to be consistently successful at this, it, it takes tinkering all day long. Yeah. You know, and that's, it's not an easy thing to do. You, you really have to use as many tools at your disposal. And this is just something else that you're going to have to introduce to your process if you're not already doing it. Yeah, I mean, we're going to dive really deep into some of these topics in our theory segments later on in the season. Uh, like I said, we're just trying to get people to brush up and just start thinking about th- these things. Just being aware of something like Lake Swab gives you an advantage over a lot of players that aren't even thinking about it. So having that in the back of your head, being conscious of it, it's it's going to force you, even if you don't know how to do it properly, it's going to force you to to look at things at whatever at 3 o'clock p.m. when you feel like your team's tanking. So. Just that little bit of knowledge is worth it. But yeah, we'll get into that for sure on some theory segments. Now, here's one of the most popular questions out there. How many lineups do I have to enter to win a tournament to give myself the best chance of winning a tournament? And there's so many questions that go into answering that question, TJ. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are, are what's what's the best, what's the most lineups I should play or number of lineups I should play to win a tournament or what's the number of lineups I should play to be profitable, to maximize my profits over the season? Um, those are all, all really different questions. I think um, the, the GPP answer is you should probably be playing stakes where you can afford to uh, maximize your buy-ins up to the number of entries allowed because if you're playing in the Millie maker and they allow 150 lineups at, at $27 a pop and you can only afford two or three, you're at an automatic disadvantage of the high stakes guys that can play 150 lineups. Um, there, if you're just talking about your, how to maximize your chances to win over uh, the course of a single tournament in terms of number of lineups, that's the way to do it. I mean, that's, that's, it's obvious, but uh 
people still want to throw money at those those big tournaments. I mean, you probably have a lot more value if you have a hundred dollars to play taking uh, that money, uh, looking for a three or five dollar twenty max tournament. That's how you're going to maximize your chance for a big day. You probably have a better chance to win twenty grand in that game than you do of even cashing in a millie maker. But uh, it goes back to to cash games too. I mean, are, what kind of games you're playing? Uh, what stakes are you playing? If you're only playing head to heads, probably you should only play one lineup because you're going to get diverse diversification uh, across your opponents and it's going to give you your truest win rate. Whereas if you're playing 50 fifties or double ups exclusively, uh, maybe you only want to, you don't want to play only one lineup because if that lineup is a dud, you're going to lose all of your 50 fifties and double ups. So you only have, you can only afford 10 bucks and you're playing uh, 10 50 fifties you probably want to roll out five to 10 uh, different lineups because you want to be able to, if your goal is to minimize that variance. I mean, if your goal is just to maximize upside, you're not worried about the floor by all means, throw one lineup into a 50, 50 or double up, but know that uh, you're, you're playing with fire. You know, most of my buddies that are going to be, that have been listening to this and are going to start listening to this now, they're not the guys that play, you know, a hundred dollars a week, a thousand dollars a week, twenty five, fifty thousand dollars a week. They're not sure. those guys. Yeah, you know, they're going out there throwing five, ten, twenty, twenty five dollars out there, trying to have a good time. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and maybe hit it big in a tournament. And it was, you know, what? How many lineups should I put in? I said, if you really want to kind of, if you want to have the the multi entry experience, go play, go put in fifty lineups on a twenty five cent game. You know, yeah, go man. put a hundred lineups in on the 25 cent game. J- just, there's nothing to be embarrassed about that. You're trying to figure out how to be successful at this. There's a lot of ways. If you do want to play, um, you know, tournaments and you want to try and figure out your, your process, go play a 25 cent buy-in. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing embarrassing about it. You, you want to play the 25, that, you want to play the Millie maker, right? But maybe the best the best choice for you is playing one of the lower stakes. So I think and, as far as the ideal number of lineups, it's not only that, it's the, the ideal cost that you're, that you're investing in this. So I think those two kind of go hand in hand. And listen, if you are one of those people and you're not trying to grant out a profit, you can still take those shots intelligently. One of the things that uh, this is kind of twofold. It's a, it's a psychological advantage and it's just monetary advantage. I do this every week. I, the The way I play uh, is I look for low entry high stakes games. So uh, for example, sometimes DraftKings has like, I, I think last year it was a, a $777, but it's only like a, a 100 man or a 50 man. I don't remember exactly. It's been almost a year. Um, but when I'm playing those, now I there's a lot of guys I've done research on that I don't have exposure to. If I don't want to overextend myself and it isn't a week where I'm taking shots at the Millie, I'll fire off 20 lineups in a $3. And yeah, that's only a $60 investment and the tournament's huge, but I got that psychological advantage of getting exposure to those players that I want to. And on the flip side, if you're a guy that is only playing say 50 bucks and you have a, you, you want to, I don't know, throw 50 lineups in the quarter arcade or something like that take all those lineups and then throw them in a $1 uh, 50, 50 or double up as well. So then if you did have a good process and uh, you just missed the the cash line, say it's paying out 25%, but you have a, a top 30 or 40% lineup, at least you're breaking even. And then at the end of the year, if you do that consistently, listen, you didn't lose, I don't know, 800 bucks over the course of the season, you broke even. So you're still playing, you're still playing with upside and for an extra, whatever it is, 20 bucks, you can uh, save yourself a little bit of face. And that kind of goes into game selection, right? What are yeah. you cash GPP three, five, 10 man games. So we're just talking about a, a couple of different strategies there it, mixing in GPP and cash. But like I told you, I, I don't think enough gets talked about some of the, the, the five man games, the 10 man games. Mm-hmm. I love, especially on those primetime slates, you know, two games, give me a 10 man game. Just give me a 10 man game. I'll be, I'll be invested in it. I mean, it's fun. I could throw in for tournaments too, but I really like going up against nine other guys and trying to finish first. If I don't finish first, there's prizes for second and third too. But you know, for me, sure. Is it maximizing profit? Yes. But it's also about having fun. And for whatever reason, those 10 man games, I like them. That's I just enjoy it. 
Yeah, th- when when people ask me about game selection, the first question I always ask them is, um, "What is your goal? Are you looking to maximize upside? Are you looking to minimize variance, or or a little bit of both?" And uh, those ten man games are are a really nice introduction for brand new players to the GPP experience because uh, I think I think they pay out three people, so it's thirty percent uh, a little bit less risk because you can cash in those with uh, a, a less than great lineup as opposed to playing against thousands of people. But you still have to be in that mindset of being a little bit of contrarian. You have to start implementing some of these uh, stacks and and different heuristics that teach you how to be good at DFS. And once you get a bit, little bit of success, I mean, you you can still. 10x money in some of those 10 man games if it's a winner take all and all of a sudden you get a nice little boost to your bankroll if you hit a couple of them now you can afford to start taking shots at these bigger games uh five man is kind of in between there obviously because it's I, I think those are paying out uh 40 of the field i believe two people cash in those so a little bit closer to a, a cash game lineup and then the three man something i i started doing last year and it was a week saver a couple of times uh instead of playing if you're someone that's playing all head-to-heads Maybe take uh, take 80% of the money that you would dedicate head-to-heads. Take your cash game lineup. Take that last 20%. Throw it in three mans. Uh, it's it's 33% uh, chance to win if it's winner-take-all. But that's a lot of upside that you're leaving on the table if those those lineups hit. And when they do hit, um, that extra 20%, especially if you're playing uh, relatively high volume, that could really, really save some weeks. Um, that's, that's something that I wasn't doing in the past. And... It, it really helped keep some of my bad weeks uh, afloat last year if, if, say, I had a really bad GPP week, but my cash games were on point. And I think that's interesting about adjusting your game allocation too, you know, especially when you're taking shots on top of it. And, and now I'm not talking about three and five and ten man games, but let's talk about that. Elaborate on taking shots and adjusting your game allocation. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about fluidity in terms of bankroll um, in a couple minutes here. But basically what people have to think about is if you are taking shots, if you're someone that usually plays, uh, say you usually play 100 bucks, and like I said, you're firing off uh, 20 lineups into a, a 20 max $5 GPP, uh, relative to, to some higher stakes games, that's relatively low variance because a lot of people can cover their bases in 20 lineups, at least in terms of players that they want exposure to. Uh, if you are going to say, for whatever reason, you want to you want to play the milli, you want to take your 100 instead of playing 20 lineups, you're just going to fire off five uh, five lineups and, and win the milli maker, sometimes it's $20 to buy in. So let's say it's a week where it's $20 to buy in. You don't have to just stick with what you're doing uh, in your general bankroll management or game selection. In that week, you can decrease your total of money in play. So now you're uh, you're decreasing your overall variance for the week, even though you're playing high variance game. Uh, and if you usually play, say, 50-50s, play more head-to-heads because that's limiting your variance on the cash game side of it. So just by picking different games, we're raising our floor in those weeks where we want to take our shots on bigger GPPs. So uh, just not being static, you can, you can really manage risk uh, – pretty confidently just by doing things like that. All right. So again, let's, let's get into the bankroll then. What is your true bankroll? Tell, tell us all about bankroll because if there's one thing that I continue to have to stay on myself about TJ is bankroll. I mean, I personally, I think it's the, it's besides for taking down a Billy Baker or getting to a live final. This is the most challenging thing is mastering your bankroll. I know so many good players that are profitable, that have consistently above average lineups. And if I told you that and showed you their lineups and showed you their scores, you would say that player's raking. But if they're not managing their bankroll correctly, you could be a losing player. I've seen it in poker. I've seen it in DFS. And the best players in the world continue to do it. And it's it comes down to discipline. That's it. Um, if you can be disciplined in bankroll and you can put in the work, chances are you could probably grind out a profit. And it doesn't. And, and bankroll management just doesn't come down to being disciplined and not spending money or or not overextending yourself. It comes on the other side too. Are you leaving upside on the table? Are you not playing enough? Are you being too conservative? And I think the most obvious example of that is these casual players that. Uh, don't understand what it means to have their their true bankroll. So, oh, 
what I see a lot with novice players is you ask them, what's your bankroll? They say $100. You say, okay, you're only spending $100 for this entire season. Uh, they say, no, I have $100 on the site. Okay, well, can you afford to uh, re-up if, if you go kaput this week? Absolutely. All right. Well, your bankroll is $1,700. Even if you don't feel comfortable putting $1,700 on the site at week one, if you can afford to re-up $100 every week for 17 weeks, your bankroll is $100 and you should be building your bankroll strategy that way. Otherwise, if you're someone that subscribes to say max 25% of your bankroll in a given week and you're only playing $25 a week because you have $100 on the site, you're leaving upside on the table. If you lose that whatever that 20% amount is of your 1700, but you can afford to, to re up at the end of the week, you have to be playing that. So know your true bankroll before you get into any, uh, game selection or, or bankroll strategy, sit down. How much am I going to dedicate to DFS this football season? I don't need to deposit in week one, which if you're brand new and there's bonuses, you probably should, but, uh, think about that before you start anything. So last but not least on bankroll, because at the beginning of the year, I see so many different columns. I'm going to, I'm going to play it safe week one. I'm going to play it safe because we don't have any patterns. And then on the other side, it's, Hey, I'm going to go in. I'm going to dive head first because it's time for me to clean up. I know a lot. There's going to be some newer players out there that don't know as much as I do. Which side do you fall on? Because I I look back at some of my totals, uh, some of my week ones in the past and, I've done well. I mean, I've done I've done mm-hmm. pretty well early on in the week, uh, early on in the season, and maybe if it it goes down as the season goes on. But I think there's quite a bit of profit to be made early on in the year, at least from a year to year basis. Yeah, there are. When I'm thinking about um, adjusting my bankroll on a week to week level, uh, I, I try to do it from a somewhat scientific and not arbitrary perspective. And there's a few main points that I looked at, and you touched on a couple of them. Uh, are there um, a lot of new players? Are there games being offered that offer a, a lot of extra money, not just in those games, but in, in uh, ancillary contests? Is it a week to take shots? And then what are salaries looking like? So talking specifically about week one, uh, there are a lot of options to weigh because a lot of these things are coming into play at the same time because one thing that happens is salaries usually come out about a month before kickoff. So what happens is there's injuries or there's shakeups in depth chart and these very obvious values uh, rise up that everybody is aware of. So it opens up salaries a lot. In general, when that happens, I pull in the reins on my bankroll because uh, the more obvious cheap plays there are, the closer it comes to a pick them and the less uh, skill there is in terms of recognizing that value. So um, in short, people can kind of just load up on these studs and the skill level is diminished. And in those spots, I want to be a, a little tighter with my bankroll. In week one specifically, it's a little deeper than that because we have an influx of a lot of new players and a lot of those players aren't going to be playing once they blow their load early in the season. A lot of people uh, load up week one. If it goes good, they keep playing. If it goes bad, maybe they're not playing until the next payday. Uh, So I want to take advantage of that in week one. There's a lot of free rolls. There are a lot of bonuses. There's a lot of overlay in week one because these sites are trying to attract as many users as, as possible. NFL is the driver of fantasy sports, and these sites want to attract and keep those users. So they're doing everything they can to get them hooked right away. So we have to take advantage of that. And even though salaries are going to be a little bit looser than we would like in week one, I think the the, the quote-unquote free money aspect, the overlay, the influx of new players, uh, it, it really overweighs uh, the, the salaries in week one. So specifically, yes, I'm, I'm going to be a little more prone to extend myself a little bit on week one. You have to be disciplined. If you aren't disciplined, stick to your rigid bankroll, but uh, we do want to be fluid when we can. And I think if you're new to DFS, take that into account. You know, don't, don't throw, don't throw the whole wad in week one, week one and week two, play it safe, get comfortable with your, learn what your process is. Keep listening to this, subscribe to four for four.com and use the code DFS MVP and get 25% off a DFS subscription. But I think that's something you got to keep an open mind too, because I think a lot of our listeners are, there's a lot of inexperienced players out there. Listen to what we're saying. 
maybe take a little bit easy in the beginning of the year and then ramp it up as the season goes on. It's all about bankroll management too. It's all about bankroll management. TJ was awesome doing the show with you. I'm really looking forward to doing it the whole season. And when, when are the week one salaries coming out? I'm ready. I'm ready to start building dummy lineups. I'm ready too. I think I, I went back and looked. I think FanDuel dropped on July 31st last year. Uh, and I think DraftKings came out a day or two later. If I remember correctly, I could be off, uh, give a day or two. But like I said, usually a month before, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, a, a couple more theory topics, maybe diving a little bit deeper into some of these things that we just touched on today as we lead up to the season. Once those salaries drop, we're going to do a, an initial reaction to them and and kind of and then put that away for a little bit before we move on to some uh, general overarching uh, positional strategies throughout August. But we're back weekly, guys. I'm excited. I'm excited for 2018. I'm excited to win some DFS money, man. Me too. Uh, I'm not excited that this show is over. Now I have to go back upstairs. So that's too bad. <laughs> But during the season, we'll be able to spend a lot more time talking about this, too. All right, buddy. Take care of yourself. It was great being a part of the DFS MVP podcast. I'm excited for the season. Guys, thanks for listening. Uh, don't forget to rate and review on iTunes, and we'll see you guys next week. Uh-huh. You know you make me feel so good. You know you make me feel so good. That's what we do.